Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and this week is going to be an especially great conversation because I am joined by... Wait a minute. You're not my podcasting partner, Pillar Editor and Co-Founder Ed Condon. What? I am joined by someone entirely different. I was born in Chicago. I'm a Cubs fan. I lived in England. Wow. Well, I went out and looked for the closest I could find to Pillar Editor and Co-Founder Ed Condon during this week in which Ed is off on paternity leave having a baby. And I have found uh, a good friend of the Pillar, a good friend of this show, a longtime friend to me and Ed, our friend, Steve White. Steve, uh, how are you? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be with you, to be the cheap knockoff of Ed Condon for a day. <laughs> well, what I mean, the critical question, I suppose, is what kind of watch are you wearing and are you feeling grumpy and cynical? I can affect grumpy and cynical. It's early enough in the day. It's before lunchtime that I can still do that. Um, I'm not wearing a watch. I have uh, an old, much cherished, somewhat damaged swatch upstairs. Wow. Why do you cherish? Uh, why do you cherish it? It was a watch that was purchased for me by my college girlfriend when I was 19, which and I, I don't know what she paid for it, but it was a significant amount for a 19-year-old college student traveling abroad. Uh, we have since been married, and I'm now okay. celebrating 15 years of marriage. So it's a, it's a watch my wife got me when we were kids. Well, what I imagined at first, Steve, is, uh, and you know, I intended to sort of start with the biography, but this is too interesting to pass up. What I imagined at first is that upstairs in your sock drawer was a watch purchased from you by a college girlfriend that your wife spent every single day resenting. I mean, just she felt, you know, energy zooming out of the sock drawer at her every single day. But thanks be to God, the woman who bought the watch became your, is that why she became your wife? Because she bought you such a great watch? No. Okay. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, Steve is the, uh, two things. He is a, he's a, he's a man, he's a think tank man. Um, which is uh, Im impressive in a, in a certain way. Steve is a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and you're, you're a fellow in something called Catholic Studies, is that right? That's correct. And then you are also the executive director of something, a project called the Catholic Project at the Catholic University of America. Is that right? Is that your right, correct title? Also correct. Well, tell us a little bit about, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about both of those things, but um, tell us a little bit about what um, it is that you do at, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and then we can talk more about the Catholic Project after that. Sure. So I went to the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas, and uh, studied politics there. And politics there is very much sort of political theory and political philosophy and not so much poli-sci. So I was always interested in, in politics because as a sort of an anthropological exercise. At some point, I moved to D.C. and was interested in the intersection of religion and politics, faith and public life, that sort of thing. And I ended up starting as a, an assistant to George Weigel at, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I worked there long enough that they just sort of made me a fellow and I've just sort of hung around. Um, but it's that work working sort of where, where religion and politics meet that got me interested in Catholic social teaching. Um, you know, and now your listeners will know that for, for the last 15 years now, I've been part of a project called the Tertio Millennio Seminar on the Free Society, which is a seminar on Catholic social teaching that meets every summer in Krakow. Uh, we didn't meet last year, but we were able to get back this year. And it's mostly graduate students uh, studying Catholic social teaching. There's an emphasis on the thought of Pope John Paul II, what with our being in Krakow, Poland, but we cover everything from Rerum Navarum right up to um, Laudato Si and Fratelli Tutti, Pope Francis. 
Um, you, of course, are, are a graduate of that seminar. You're one of our alums. I, I am, although I probably am not in the brochure. There's probably a lot of people doing great things in the brochure, and then they're like, and also another guy that we don't talk about that much. Yeah, but if we ever needed you to fill in for one of the people on the brochure, I'm sure you'd be high on our list. Oh, I am. I'm <laughs> red, I, I, I kind of wake up and do calisthenics every morning in case you call me to fill in, actually. Um, so it, it was my work. So I've been, I've been sort of working in that field in, in church and culture and church and politics for Catholic social teaching for, for a long time. And I, I um, in the summer of 2018, especially once uh, the unhappy news about uh, Theodore McCarrick broke and then the Pennsylvania grand jury report, like most people who work in the area that I work in, I was writing a lot about, uh, about the sex abuse crisis and the challenges facing the church and how is this happening again? And why wasn't this fixed last time or the time before that and all the rest of it. And it was partly because of that work, that I was contacted by the Catholic University of America. President John Garvey was interested in, and it had in fact already started, a, a series of projects, sort of a, a, a cluster, a small galaxy of different projects that he wanted to do to, um, as sort of the university's response to this moment of crisis in the church, not just to be seen to do something, but, to, but try and put together a series of projects and, and different kinds of work that would help the church in the moment of crisis, that would provide a way forward in which laity and clergy weren't pitted as antagonists mm -hmm. so that the, the church could sort of heal in a collaborative and familial way rather than adversaries at each other's throats until one of them is left standing, uh, which there was a lot of that in 2018, 2019. There's still some of it today. I don't know if you've noticed yeah. that, but so I took, I, it started in, in February of 2019 that I became executive director. And since then that's been my primary work and, and was a full-time job. So, um, I've been working there, uh, Sort of at first, the project was a bit like building an airplane mid-flight. As I said, we had a bunch of different projects that were already in motion when I came on board, and we had a series of conferences. You were actually part of one of the first things that would become the Catholic Project before there was a name. You were on a panel in November of 2018, if I recall, with Ross yeah, Douthat like and Liz Bruning. Ross Douthat and Liz Bruning. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we held a series of academic conferences. We've been putting together some academic programs. We offer we offer now a, a certificate in child protection and safe environments for people who want a relatively short but intense uh, training and formation in putting together safe environment plans and enforcing safe environment plans. Cool. Yeah. Well, I want to hear more about the Catholic Project, but actually, I, I before we get there, I'm kind of like intrigued by something because you glossed over something that I suspect to a lot of people sounds uh, weird, and, and it's this. Um, I graduated from the University of Dallas with a degree in something called politics, and then I moved to Washington, and I sort of found myself becoming the assistant to George Weigel. Um, in our universe, the universe of the church, um, papal biographer George Weigel is, you know, kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, like a lot of people who graduate from my alma mater, the Franciscan University of Steubenville, have a story that says, like, well, I went to Steubenville, and then I, you know, was always interested in church and culture, and then I, I found myself suddenly becoming a youth minister. That's sort of an ordinary track in our in, in our universe. Or I found myself the DRE at a parish, or uh, I went to Steubenville and I um, had always been interested in faith and culture, and then I found myself um, going to law school. Uh, but uh, rarely do you hear, uh, I went to uh, the University of Dallas and always had an interest in faith and politics, and then I sort of fell into being um, personal assistant to a famous dude. Uh, what, what, how did that happen? Uh. The true story is this, and I'll give you the we true story. We only tell now. the truth. We so, only tell the truth on the uh, podcast. 
when I was a student at the University of Dallas, George Weigel's oldest daughter, Gwyneth, was my RA during my study abroad semester. So in the fall of 2000, I was lucky enough, I went over to Rome for, uh, this is the same semester I got that watch, if you remember. Oh, to, Just to tie right. it back in. Yeah, so I, right. I, went, I went over for World Youth Day um, and stayed, and that was my study abroad semester, fall of 2000. And our RA, one of our RAs was, was Gwyneth, and she, you know, she used to teach us Italian words so we could go up to the Mensa and tell the Italian ladies what ingredients we need, and then we'd bring them back, and Gwyneth would make us chocolate chip cookies and things like that. She was great. And wow. uh, late in the semester, we were told that we, there was going to be an all-school all, all school assembly. There was I had 100 of us, give or take, on campus at the time. So we were all expected to be there. There was going to be a, a lecture that evening. Someone was coming into town. Someone had written a book, and, and we were expected to be there, which that was fine. I didn't, I didn't mind. I didn't have other plans. But it was a little unusual for someone to show up. And it, we found out that this was Gwyneth's dad. So we, Gwyneth, her name being Gwyneth Weigel, we called her Wiggles. That was her nickname. Uh -huh. um, so we were kind of wondering why Wiggles' dad a was coming and why Wiggles dad was the sort of person who could give a command performance in which the entire school was expected to attend and listen to him talk. Oh, cause this was like, this was like what late nineties, early 2000s. This is 2000. So you, witness to hope had just come out. I obviously which had is not read Weigel's it. biography, Weigel's biography of the Pope, which Correct. I think at that time, a lot of Catholics who were adults were like, this guy is a big deal. Probably the leaders of the university of Dallas were like, this guy's a big deal. But like we, we were kids. So it's like, well, was he in, um, it was Wiggles' you know, was, dad. I, yeah, I mean, right, yeah. nothing against yeah. the guy, but it's Wiggles' dad. Anyway, so sure. he shows up, and this is this was also right. This was after the 2000 election, but before the Supreme Court had ruled on the election. So we knew the election was over, but no one knew who the next president of the United States was going to be. Just to set okay. some context, so Wiggles' dad comes up to the podium. We're all there, gathered politely to listen to whatever he has to say about whatever book he just wrote, and he starts by saying. I had lunch with the Holy Father today, and he looked across the table at me and said, what's going on in your country? Meaning the election. And yeah. I, that's when I knew. I said, oh, Wiggles' dad has lunch with the Pope. I guess he must be somebody. Uh, mm -hmm. That was the first time I met George Rigel, and I didn't, you know, didn't know anything about him other than he had lunch with the Pope, and he was Wiggles' dad. Um, I graduated from college and ended up living in a, a seminary, not as a seminarian, doing sort of missionary work in London for eight months after, after Saint, college. The St. Patrick's School of Evangelization. Yes, uh, in St. Patrick's Soho in, in Soho in London. It, at the time, it had a different name. I believe it was called Commission. Um, oh, wow. Which then was That's changed a, to SPES, which is St. Patrick's Evangelization School. And I think it's since no longer running. But the, the parish is still there and still does great work. But that, So that, you were living in London, living in a seminary, being a missionary. Yeah. It was a time of intense vocational discernment for me. Probably a whole other story. We can get into that if you want. But it was it was it was a time when I had I thought I had a lot of things figured out at the end of college and that were suddenly not figured out, including well, you, that you girl thought you wanted to be a, a priest, but the girl bought you the watch. I mean, you thought well, you were supposed to be a priest, but the girl I bought you the like, watch. I can't become a priest if this girl bought me a watch. I mean, that's, <laughs> right, exactly. that's the kind I mean, of gift you just. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. We uh, uh, my wife and I dated for a couple of years and for three years, three and a half years. Okay, so we basically dated all through college, and mm -hmm. and that ended senior year. Um, so I was suddenly single and found myself living in a seminary in a foreign country. And I thought maybe someone, you know, God moves in mysterious ways. And sometimes he's very subtle, like the whispering wind outside of the cave. Sometimes he hits us over the head with a hammer and is not subtle at all. I thought, well, maybe if I'm living in a seminary in a foreign country, suddenly single, maybe I have to rediscern some things that I thought I had discerned. 
If not, at the very least, I mean, I smell sitcom. That sounds like a great <laughs> setup. <laughs> oh. yeah, let me tell you about the Norwegian seminarians we had. No, so <laughs> I um, can imagine. Uh, and it was it was a it was an incredibly graced time for me uh, when I was in London. There was a lot of it was sort of a spiritual boot camp in a way. I had I had a lot of um, anyway. I, I came back sort of spiritually reinvigorated, not sure of what I wanted to do, but more sure that I was, whatever was right in front of me was a thing that God was asking me to do and less worried about where am I going to be in 10 years or 15 years. And anyway, I, very long story, not really all that short. I, when I came back to the States in 2004, I ended up in Washington, DC and uh, managed to reconnect with George Weigel. And he was looking for a new assistant and it all just sort of worked out. DC can be a very frustrating town. Um, it's a, in the sense, well, in, in a lot of ways, but in, in the sense that it can really, um, knowing somebody can make a big difference. So I knew a couple of people who knew George and they sort of put me on his radar. There were a lot of people who applied for the job, I guess, but, um, and I'm not sure that I was more qualified than any of them, but he knew people who knew me and they were able to reasonably vouch for me. Um, so it can be, it can be frustrating because sometimes, the competition for a job or for a position is, is fierce and it goes to someone who just happens to know people who know the person who's making the decision. Sometimes that can have work out in your favor though. And I'm living proof of that. So, Sure. Because that effectively shapes the trajectory of your entire adult life in that, I mean, even when you talk about, I always think it's interesting when I talk to people who, um, who work at think tanks and, and you'll understand this, I suspect, because I, I think people probably ask you this from time to time, but you talk to a person who works at a think tank, you know, IEU, and they say things like, well, I'm interested in um, the intersection of, uh, of Catholic social teaching and American public discourse. So I've been working on that for a while. And it's like, well, what? Like every day I make a news. That is my job. I have to like find a news and make a news. And even that's somewhat abstract relative to someone who's an accountant who every day has to like uh, find a spreadsheet and balance the spreadsheet. Um, what does it sort of mean to say I work on um, this in a this thing which is a kind of abstract reality? What is that life like? What does that mean? Well, it it depends on which think tank you're at. To be totally honest with you, um, one way to think about think tanks, and not all think tanks fit this mold well, they used to more. The think tank is sort of a, a university with no students. Think of it as a research university where people research and write on certain topics to try and inform either public debate or policy debates, um, but they don't have class to teach. So when I say working on something, usually I mean is researching, setting up meetings, writing on things, speaking on things. Then, you know, in my case, we have this Tertio Millennium Seminar that we do every summer. So a big chart of my work for the last 15 years has been putting together preparations for that, helping to organize things, making sure, you know, very mundane stuff, budgeting, making sure that fundraising letters go out, making sure that travel arrangements are made, all that sort of stuff for that particular project. So some of it's sort of mundane writing and academic sort of work, researching and writing, speaking. Some of it is almost event planning sort of things. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But it, it's... It, it's it, it differs from, from think tank to think tank, right? So one of the things I loved about and still love about the Ethics and Public Policy Center is that it hits a nice balance between being focused on the day-to-day -day work of, of partisan politics. Uh, so there's some think tanks that are sort of thinly veiled advocacy organizations, right? They're, they're not lobbyists, but that's basically their function. Or to produce kind of the white papers that lobbyists use to make their point when they're advocating for some particular or even, policy or, goal or something e like that. Even less sort of strategic than that. They're very much sort of political tacticians rather than, uh -huh. than we're engaged in strategy. And then there are think tanks that are much, much, much more sort of academic. And 
I, I've always liked the Ethics and Public Policy Center, both because it's a think tank that was started to be explicitly to attack issues of the day from a religious point of view. Um, I work in the Catholic Studies Program. A, a majority, maybe, of our scholars are Catholic, but we have evangelicals and, and Jews and, and et cetera. So it's an ecumenical and interreligious organization. But the whole idea was to have a place where where it's not just that religious viewpoints aren't off limits, but they're encouraged. So Catholic studies is a good fit for that. Anyway, so there's a, there's a nice balance between the practice and the theory that I've always liked. I um, I have a degree, <laughs> I did graduate studies in in philosophy at the School of Philosophy at Catholic University of America. Philosophy has always been tough for me in this in this sense. That philosophy always makes me want to do one of two things, which is either politics, like what are we going to do about it, or uh-huh. why are we doing this with our hand one hand tied behind our back? Let's do theology. All right, so philosophy is sort of that, that middle ground between politics and theology where I always feel like I should be drifting one way or another. So I like I like a balance, but I also like being able to uh, to talk about religious things from a theological point of view or take a look at the you know sort of more concrete political questions. And the reason I went to study philosophy was to sort of help tie those two together better. Well, Steve, that's, that's interesting because, um, you know, one of the, I think one of the obvious, this is not what we had planned to talk about, but that's kind of how the show works. Um, I, I think one of the obvious like challenges right now for Catholics, or, I mean, for all, for, for practicing Catholics in the United States is, is making, is figuring out what the kind of reconciliation is between faith and the political landscape. And there is just, I, I suppose that's a perennial challenge, but um, we live in this time. And so it seems particularly cute to me in this time, I suppose. But it seems to me that the that the even the sort of lines of sort of political consensus among Catholics are fracturing. So it seems to me that maybe even 20 years ago, you might have had sort of Catholics who, uh, practicing Catholics who were um, uh, practicing Catholics who might be described as sort of being leftwardly oriented, um, who, uh, you know, would be more inclined to accept a sort of um, political compromise on abortion or other things because they felt, generally speaking, that Catholic social teaching requires, um, you know, a broad social safety net and, and, and things like that. And then, um, you know, so you put those as sort of practicing Catholics who who, uh, who vote Democrat or are Democrats. And then you would have had a, a, a sort of consensus of Catholics sort of on the right who fit into a kind of Republican neoconservative consensus who would say, um, you know, my Catholic faith is... Um, aligned with the values of the Republican Party in these ways and particularly on uh, particularly on abortion and the family and those kinds of things. And by and large, you didn't see, I mean, by and large, for the most part, that seemed to, to fit most um, people who were talking about faith and politics. But it, it seems to me now, and maybe because of the landscape disruption of the Trump presidency, maybe because of other things, but it seems to me now that those consensuses are fracturing to some extent and there are like more iterations of perspective of what it means to sort of be a Catholic and have a political perspective so that, you know, you see um, on the left, the political left, as it were, you would see the rise of writers like Liz Bruning, who I was on that panel with, who is, who, who would say, yeah, I'm a devout and practicing and serious Catholic and a socialist, I'm, you know, sort of aligned to the Democratic Socialists of America for the most part. Um, or, and then, on, and then sort of you, you see the emerging trend of people who would identify themselves as integralists who would say, um, yeah, no, I think that uh, sort of Catholic political thought and Catholic theology requires um, a much different relationship between the church and the state than we would ordinarily uh, experience in this country because um, the state should really be informed by um, 
the teachings of the church and have a sort of preferential option for a Catholic vision of the world that's expressed in law. Um, and, you know, that the state has a duty to sort of form people in the direction of Catholicity because that is the, the that will be the fullness of their happiness. And, and that's an, a trend that I think is uh, newly emerging, at least on the American landscape. So I guess, given that this is your area, how do you kind of read that um, fracturing and sort of this moment for Catholics, uh, for practicing Catholics kind of in, in the political landscape? So I'm going to start with this with this caveat, which is that this might sound what I'm about to say might sound like a theory of everything. And I don't mean it as that um, theory, sure. theories of everything. This is the one thing that if we just fix this, everything would be fine. Uh, yeah. Aren't very helpful. But I think this is something that that I've come to appreciate more. And I think people might find a little bit helpful, which is uh, it, I'm not the first person to say that, you know, in the past we had broad agreement about the ends of government or political life, but disagreed about the means. And now our disagreements tend to be more first order disagreements, disagreements about the the ends of government, let alone the means, right? So we don't agree about what government's for, or what politics ought to be, or what the common good is. And I, th- I think that's true. I think Catholic social teaching can help us to refine that a bit more, make even more distinctions that help throughout. Um, it's hard to know uh, how we ought to organize our lives together as a society um, if we don't know who and what we are. Um, it's hard to talk about justice. What does one person owe to another? Or what does one person owe to the society? What does society owe to the individual? If we don't have a sense of what we mean by a person or by a society. Um, so I can't answer the question, was this action just or is this policy just if I don't have any concept of who's doing what to whom, right? Um, how I treat my own children is different than how I treat my neighbor's children. And if I were to treat you as I would treat my children, I would be doing something unjust, right? So I have to understand who I am, what is my relationship to the person that I'm acting towards, and then measure the justice of my action according to that. That's not to say there aren't objective standards of morality in some cases, but but for most of the decisions in public life, or a great many of the decisions in public life, there's not an algorithm where you put in your moral input and it pops out, you know, this is the right and just action. It requires prudence. It requires understanding what is my relation to this, to this person? What, is, what kind of relationship am I dealing with? What kind of authority are we talking about? I have authority as a father over my children that I don't have over you. So if I try and exercise my authority as a father over you, I'm making a mistake, right? I'm taking liberties, you might say. Um, We've lost a sense of what these kinds of relationships are. We've lost a sense of what it means to be a human person, what that entails in terms of rights, and especially in terms of responsibilities, what the social, the social dimension of a human person is. And as that, as our grasp on those things becomes fuzzier, uh, we still want to argue about justice or about relationships or about rights. But none of our terms match up. We're, we're arguing about things and we're, we're, we're talking past each other more and more. And we try and solve that by speaking louder or typing in all caps or whatever. So I, it, it's, a, it's a very serious problem and it's one that doesn't have an easy answer. But I think there's, there's, a, uh, there's the beginning of an answer, I think, in actually in Laudato Si. Uh, Pope Francis is encyclical on the environment of all of all things. But you're a huge Laudato Si guy. I am. Like you talk about Laudato Si. For Laudato someone who, who's a more or less conservative politically person, I'm a huge Laudato Si guy. Yeah. Um, uh, and the reason is is mostly this. Uh, uh, 
the breakdown I'm describing where we don't know what we are, so we don't know how to treat each other. We don't know what other people are, so we don't know how to act towards them justly. We don't know how to measure what's a just action and what's not a just action. Underlying that, what I've been talking about is essentially a breakdown of our understanding of nature, human nature. And I don't mean just trees and birds. I don't mean all the stuff that we need to you know, uh, preserve the environment so we're not losing species and so we're not polluting and things like that. That's clearly part of it. But nature is not just stuff out there. Nature is not just the stuff of creation that human beings didn't create ourselves, right? That we sometimes make this distinction between there's the human part of reality, which is our, our computers and our technology and our sort of artificial things. And then there's the natural. And that's not the distinction I mean. And I don't mean sort of the pantheistic kind of nature, which is everything that exists is in some sense natural. Like it's a part of the natural where you and I are talking to each other on technology that's you know, was created by human ingenuity, but it uses raw materials that come out of the earth, right? Everything we got here is just dug out of the ground or whatever. Um, and so we're not just undifferentiated matter. Like the difference between you and me and a squirrel or a brick is not just the shape and arrangement of the molecules, right? We don't take a materialistic view of, of, of ourselves like that. We're not just, um, everything around us isn't just bouncing molecules and energy, so, so we're not materialists, but we're also not totally divorced from, from nature, where there's the human world and the natural world, and there's, they're totally separate. Um, what I mean by nature is things that exist and what they are for, right? There's an older teleological understanding of, of nature as um, that, that includes the end of something, meaning what it's for, what is it for? And we've lost that. We've lost a sense of nature. And how we get it back is one question, but the reason I brought up Laudato Si is I think Pope Francis is very good at drawing out how we've come to lose a sense of, of nature and our place in it. We are sort of generally speaking, at least here in the United States, affluent enough and technologically savvy enough that we can convince ourselves that we can't do anything we want, but we can manipulate creation in the material world to a tremendous extent. And it works, right? People build laptop computers and they turn them on and I can talk to you across the country through a wire and over you know, magic radio waves that bounce off of stars or something. I don't know how it works. Uh, so we're, our, techno our technological prowess is so expansive and is accelerating at such an astonishing rate that we can convince ourselves that we are sort of masters of nature, that, that the material world around us at least is really subject to our manipulation. We can, however we can make stuff work or change things or manipulate things or use things we're free to do that and if you it's interesting because if you believe in the pandemic then you would think well maybe the pandemic has sort of um, poked a hole in that sort of broad trend but maybe that's part of the reason why people are low reticent to believe in the pandemic i, I don't know well th this is part of where the confusion is because we we are part of the material world too we're not purely material beings but we have bodies right, right yeah um that are subject to the laws of of physics um, so we can't treat the natural world as just stuff subject to our manipulation to be used however we want without learning the same thing about our own bodies, yeah. right? Uh, um, and we see this, and Pope Francis makes this connection when he talks about the culture, the throwaway culture and the culture of waste, which he ties to all kinds of life issues like abortion and euthanasia, but also to the way we use the natural world. Um, the Catholic point of view, of course, is that all of creation is shot through with meaning. All of creation speaks to the glory of God, including our own bodies. And it's not that it just, um, that's not something we just simply assert. But if we live as if the world around us doesn't matter, we teach ourselves something about ourselves, too. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so we this this loss of a sense of nature I, in 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 the moral life. Um, the classical definition of virtue, which I'm sure you know, JD. Uh, yeah, so Cicero's definition of virtue, right, is a habit of soul in accord with reason and nature and moderation. Um, if we don't have a sense of nature, we can't even understand what virtue and vice are. We can't even understand what or agree about what reason is. So we, we as we've lost our connection to nature, we sort of separate ourselves and our minds and mostly in the way that we live from the rest of the universe, we've lost our capacity to engage with it rationally and to see things like justice and, and how we to organize our, ourselves together. And that's, that's a very big problem. I don't have a solution for it. If I did, I'd run for Pope or president or something. I don't know. But, uh, but I think, I think to underscore one sort of takeaway is, is, is we can't just address this problem at the level of ideas. It's one thing to diagnose a problem, but there's also a kind of paralysis by diagnosis. Everyone has a theory about what's wrong with the world. That's fine. But at some point, you say, how do you change that? We need to stop living as if the world around us doesn't matter. We have to stop living as if man can live by bread alone, as if the material realities are the things that really matter. We have to get back to living as if creation does mean something. If it does point to a higher reality, that there is transcendence, hints of transcendence in the world around us. Um, and if we can't do that, then it's hard to know how we're going to be able to live together peaceably. Um, so whether we're talking about the United States or we're talking about some abstract regime there isn't one that is a perfect fit for the christian life so there's always a sense of inadequacy there's always a sense that we are as christians obliged to work to form our public life to the extent we can uh, in a way that's conducive to christian christian life and human flourishing while at the same time realizing we're never going to get there and if it weren't for christian hope that would be futile and a waste of time um, and would breed cynicism but we know because we're Christians, uh, that our hope is not in uh, what we can build, but in what Christ will do uh, through us if we're responsive to his call and to, to the working of the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's the least political answer. <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the, I think the, the emerging debates that we have about the legitimacy of liberalism, things like that, these, are, these aren't new debates. But they're newly sharp. It, it seems to me that they're newly sharp. I remember when I was in college, we had, uh, there was a, sort of a, a wave of a similar debate. Um, First Things Magazine ran that in the, in the mid-90s, you know, an entire episode. It was basically a symposium on whether this was the end of democracy because of this, calling into question the, legitis, the legitimacy of the American regime because of abortion. Mm-hmm. Um I do think you're right that these are these issues have reemerged in a way that's newly sharp, and I think part of the reason for that is that the status quo ante seems much less sustainable these days. Yeah, um, I think especially for people sort of your age, my age, and a bit younger, their experience as an adult of the American project in ordered liberty is, you know, 9/11, uh, foreign wars, economic collapse. Eight years of Obama, including Obergefell and, and arrival of gay marriage, then Donald Trump, and if that if you're a 37 year old Catholic and that's your experience of the American experiment in ordered liberty, throw in from the Catholic side the abuse crisis and all the rest of it. This doesn't seem like it's going well. Now things don't have to be this way, and things haven't always been this way, but it's pretty clear that we're in a pretty bad stretch, and that that I think calls into question what were we doing to begin with? And then, of course, there's the perennial question. I don't know if you want to get into this. I kind of don't. You know, is this the inevitable 
end? This is this where this whole thing was going uh, right. inexorably, or is this just right. where it happened to end up? My short answer to that is history is not the playing out of philosophical principles. But yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I I, I think that's right. Often I think perhaps um, eschated into the into the reading of history. Um, is a sort of proof text for uh, for our own set of philosophical principles, but I, I think I think you're probably right about that. But the, the the one point that you make that ties in, and this is you did a great job uh, making a transition here. The one point that you make that really ties in with your with your current work is um, just a rising trend of institutional distrust among uh, broadly, right, among among Americans, but especially younger Americans, but 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 increasingly among Catholics too, right? So one of the sort of great mo- um, trends of the mo- of the moment in terms of uh, forces shaping sort of the direction, social direction, um, is just a, an increasing distrust in institutions. And that probably comes from the kinds of things that you were talking about in the secular world. But for Catholics, it also comes from the experience of the last few years with the sexual abuse crisis and the way in which that has sort of impacted their um, their confidence in the institutions, uh, the institutional leadership of the church to do the right thing. And, and that's a lot of, um, it, it seems to me, as I understand it, at least, that's a lot of what you focus on in, in your work at the Catholic Project. Am I reading that right? Yes. Yeah. So um, going back to the, the Catholic Project, the, it was started as a way to respond to the abuse crisis. But from the very beginning, we knew, and by we, I mean myself and President Garvey and the other, the other people who I've been working with at Catholic University, understood that the abuse crisis is not something that happened in isolation, sort of in this sort of vacuum from the rest of ecclesial and social life. Um, and it's not something that's going to be solved quickly or in a vacuum, which is to say, addressing the abuse crisis as fully as we are able to means certain structural reforms and putting in place sort of strategies and protocols for preventing abuse and for dealing with it when it happens. And there's a lot of work to be done in that in that area. But there's also a sense that, look, if if we were to ensure perfectly the safety of children in church environment, if we were to ensure that instances of abuse were always dealt with perfectly, um, if we were to ensure that financial malfeasance never occurred in the Catholic church or in any Catholic institution and, and so on, we, we would still, it's not the case we could just go to people and say, hey, look, we're not going to hurt your kids. And we're not going to steal your money. Come back to church. Like that's not that's not an evangelically promising pitch, right? So if if the if addressing the abuse crisis means not just looking at that specific um, wound in the life of the church, but means looking at it always in the context of what is the mission of the church as such, then addressing the abuse crisis has to be done in the context of trying to revitalize the mission of the church. If you want to heal a wound, you have to have some sense of what a healthy body is like, right? So as important and urgent as the abuse crisis has been, and as much of our work deals with that, we're always trying to keep our eyes toward how this work fits into the broader mission of the church. And I, I go to some length to emphasize that because, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot when talking about the abuse crisis and what's to be done afterwards, we hear a lot about what is the role of the lady conversations about the role of the lady. We've been having conversations in the church about the role of the lady for well, certainly since the council, but since the council, they've been sort of more intense. And they, every couple of years, they sort of ramp up. And um, if they're important questions. Often those questions are discussed in terms of who gets to do what, sort of a division of labor within the church. Um, in one form, this might be, you know, why aren't there more, or why can't there be women cardinals? Or why aren't there more uh, lay female chancellors of dioceses? Though there are some. Um, 
on the other end, you have, you know, why can't women be priests and stuff like Why can't, you know, lay people appoint their own bishops and whatever. They're, so there's just broad, but most of those questions have to do with who gets to do what and who decides. They're questions of authority and they're questions of power. And like I said, those are important questions, but they're, they only get you so far. Um, a much more interesting question, but much more difficult to answer it, or even to begin thinking about how you're going to answer is if the laity is living its vocation, its baptismal vocation, well, not perfectly, because this is still, you know, we're still this side of the eschaton. But if the, if, if the lady and the church are living our lay vocation well, what might the church look like? If we were being the leaven that we're called to be, instead of complaining about or arguing about, because it's not only complaints, arguing about who gets to do what within the church, might not we actually be transforming the church and transforming the world in a way that is the church becoming more fully what she ought to be rather than trying to change it into something that we think maybe she could be. So that those kinds of questions are much more interesting. I'm really interested in how throughout history, renewal and revival in the church have generally come not from big strategic plans put in place by a pope or a bishop. They generally come from men and women deciding to live either individually or in small groups to, to make a radical decision to live differently. Right. I mean, think of St. Francis, what, you know, in Assisi, why is this rich kid's son stripping naked in front of the bishop? He's a bit goofy. Um, those kinds of radical decisions in the moment often look a bit eccentric. In hindsight, they look, you can see, clearly see the hand of providence. But I, all this is to say, I think, I think my belief is, my hunch is that the best thing that the lady can do to help perform the church or to help the mission of the church is to, to really look at what it means to trust in God's providence and to make radical decisions to live for the gospel and, and worry about what that turns into later. Cause that's not really our job. Um, well, Steve, I think, I think there are two things that are complementary to each other. And uh, there's a danger, I think um, of, of uh, n- not that you're falling into this, but there is a danger, I think of potentially kind of separating them. Um, so there is a, there's reform and then there's renewal, right? And so reform is um, a, 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 a necessarily sort of top-down change of uh, of systemic problems or, or or even just sort of one-off standalone problems within institutions by means of the use of authority. So reform is changing the rules, um, you know, excising the bad guys, uh, um, changing the training to ensure that the good, you know, that, that well-intentioned people are trained well, those kinds of things. Those are mechanisms of reform. Vos estis lex mundi is intended to be um, a reform towards greater sort of accountability in the church's ability to investigate things. Uh, the the things like diocesan review boards are intended to be um, effectively sort of reforms of of, uh, of investigative processes. And then in seminaries, things like love them or lump them, things like kind of probadutic years or things like that are intended to be mechanisms of a, of reform of a training system in order to give people the interior life that lets them not um, be ordained and then do very bad things. Um, and that's necessary. There, there is a the, the part where I think you're right is that that a lot of the argument um, or a lot of the discussion since 2018 has been everybody sort of bringing their agenda to the reform question, um, and that's where you get situations which are wholly untenable or proposals which are wholly untenable. Like we would only solve the abuse crisis if the church sort of rejected Ordinatio Sacerdotalis and we had women priests because women uh, priests would prevent priests from doing these kinds of things. Or um, if lay people were able to fire their bishop, then we would be able to resolve things like McCarrick because lay people would have intuitively known it before clerics things, which it seemed to me to be both uh, untrue, but also, um, also theologically untenable. Um, so uh, th- it seems like the fight has been largely in 
in in areas of reform. You're saying we also need to be attentive to renewal, and that's true. I think we have to be careful not to say we also have to be ten- attentive to renewal. So hey, lay people look over there and be more holy, and then you'll be doing your part because we, I think we should be holding ecclesiastical leaders to account accountability, you know, to, accountable to to reform. But th- there is a way, perhaps, in which this sense of renewal, um, the sort of a, a new flourishing of just apostolic life in the church has been has been um, we've lost sight of the importance of that side of it, maybe in, in arguments about reform. Is that where you're... Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I, and I think it's, it's worth adding to that, you know, genuine renewal always eventually takes on an ecclesial institutional form. I think, I think one of the things that's made the emphasis on reform more difficult is, as we were already talking about, not just in the church, but a general decline in trust of institutions. Um, and that applies to the church too, not just among Catholic, but the, this idea that big institutions are sort of ipso facto suspect. Uh, that's really widespread. I don't know how you fix that or whatever. I think maybe institutions doing what they're supposed to do well for a while would sort of refill the reservoir of trust there maybe. But so if you have at a time when you have a sort of built in or baked in institutional sus- sus- suspicion of institutions, it makes the fight over reform a bit messier. The other side of that is and maybe I'm projecting here, or maybe I'm only projecting here, because I'm certainly projecting a little bit, is that there's a certain sense in which it's easier to say, okay, we've got this problem, we all recognize it, what are we going to do about it? Let's come up with some big plan, some strategy, and we will uh, do a whole bunch of things that are intended to address this, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but at least we can say, hey, look what we're doing, we're putting a lot of time and effort and money into doing these things. And it, Part of the appeal of that, and I think most people, if they're honest, would admit this, part of the appeal of that is that it puts the onus on fixing an institution, some anonymous thing that's out there that I don't really have total control over, rather than doing the hard and painful but very necessary work of, I really need to be better at being a saint. Because that's going to do more for the church than some some scheme that I came up with, as good or as necessary as that scheme may be. Pope Francis has been really good on this point, I think, throughout the abuse crisis, is, is making sure that there is at once uh, an emphasis on the need for structural reforms and changes in policies that need to be made, while at the same time saying there, there's no policy that's going to fix the real problem here, but that the the spiritual ecclesial, ecclesial realities underlying the crisis need to be recognized. And we have to realize that those are things that a better policy in this or a better procedure for that aren't necessarily going to fix. So you have to have both, I think. Well, what what is it like for you? I mean, the interesting thing about the, about doing this kind of work for you is that you are doing this kind of work at um, an institution, which is the Bishop's University, right? So, I mean, something which is sort of kind of at the heart of the institution in America. Um, does that... And there's a way in which the Catholic Project, which I think has produced all these really cool things, was also um, part of a wave of things which were kind of announced in 2018 by institutions who um, wanted to to do something, right? They wanted to do something, and and critics would say wanted to be seen doing something, right? Um, and so at CUA, that means saying we're going to have this project that looks at these things. Um, but it, but what is it like for you to kind of do think about um, institutional renewal and reform from the context of being sort of inside the institution itself. Sure. No, I, the first thing to say is that this is not a project of, you know, Steve gets a chance to hatch ideas out of his head and put them in, into reality. This is, this is 
my job really is to help facilitate the work and the, of the of the experts and faculty that we already have at the university who are are doing things that are good or, or uh, given the the time or the funding or the ability or the motivation or whatever would would be able to to do work that would help the church. What I'm thinking of, and I'm going to say, is right now we we're in the the earlyish stages of of working through a large scale research project to look at how the church's response to the abuse crisis has affected relationships between priests and bishops. Right. So after the, next year is the 20th anniversary of the Dallas Charter. For 20 years now, we've had a series of protocols and policies that we all know why they were necessary. There's been some criticism, sustained criticism for, for a long time, but over, mostly they've been seen to a seem to have done a good job. Uh, if they come down too hard on anyone, generally on priests. But there's this question of, of what happens when you over a generation and you take the relationship between a bishop and his priest and you you shift it from a model of sort of father-son or brother-brother relationship, sort of a paternal or fraternal relationship, and you shift it more towards like a human resources model, right? Now, we know why that happened. We know why that was necessary. And hopefully it hasn't fully turned into an HR model. But as that happens, for the sake of accountability, for the sake of having protocols for certain kinds of sins and grimes, that's had an effect on the way priests relate to their own bishops. And, and so we've had bishops and priests come to us and say, this is, a, this is a problem. We'd like to see why this has happened, understand how we can fix it, understand where, where places where the relationship of trust between the priests and bishops is real healthy, while at the same time having the necessary protocols in place that we all have to have. Um, so we're, we're spending a good chunk of money and a lot of time putting together a research project to look at that. That's something that we had faculty who wanted to do that sort of thing, and we've just been able to sort of make it possible through the Catholic project. Uh, and that is information that will be helpful to the church. It'll be helpful to bishops, I hope, and to priests, but also to, to others. So one of the unique things about Catholic University is, yes, we're the bishop's university, which helps us and hurts us in a certain way, right? People will trust us because we have a connection to the bishops, and some people might not trust us because we have a connection to the bishops. President Garvey has has been, you know, sort of a stalwart in, in making sure that we're able to do the things we do and, and uh, giving us the, the space and the freedom to do the kind of work we're doing. You know, you know this because you were on it. We, we produced a podcast that came out about a year ago called Crisis. And the idea was, when we started making it, is there's a lot of people who have a lot of questions about what the heck is going on in the church. Um, there's a million different uh, voices telling them what's going on. And this, you know, it's this, it's that, it's not this, it's these people, it's whose fault. It's what's... So try and take an in-depth look at what happened, what has been happening. How did we get to this point? What is the church doing about it? And where might we go from there? Um, so that was something that we did for ordinary Catholics. It's something that, yeah, we had bishops you know, who were happy to talk to us. We had some who were not. And through that, we were able to, to maintain our independence in a way that, you know, we're, we're Catholics and we want to be faithful to the, we strive to be faithful to the church and to, to, to build up the church. At the same time, we know that that means taking a hard look at some things that nobody wants to look at. We'd much rather look elsewhere, but healing the certain wounds means you have to you have to take a hard look at things to, to really understand them. So part of the work is just striking that balance between being uh, a, a, a Catholic at a Catholic institution that has, uh, that is the Bishop's University. Um, our board leadership is, is overwhelmingly lay at this point, but for most of your listeners, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so b- being Catholic, and you know something about this, right? Being a faithful Catholic whose, whose work is tied to questions um, 
about what the church has done right, what the church has done wrong, and how do you do that faithfully while also, you know, doing the job that you need to do, not just because, well, we have a job to do and that's our mission, but because... We uh, believe in it and we think it's important. Because it needs to be done, and if we don't do it, someone who maybe has an axe to grind or has yeah. a, a an unhelpful agenda might might be doing it, might be the only ones doing it, so... Um, so it, I think that goes to something. I think that goes to something that is a, that is a, it can be a challenge for me, and I know is a challenge for people who who listen to the show too, especially people who work in the church. Which is just um, like it's it's now you know three years after two thousand eighteen, and um, I think people have had a lot of different responses to the um, to the crisis of two thousand eighteen and following. And there are ecclesiastical leaders, I think, who want to say, well, that's in the past, and it's, you know, thank God we kind of got through 2018, and hey, we learned some lessons, and now we have Vosestes. I talk to a lot of um, lay people, both who work in the church and who don't, I talk to a lot of priests um, who say they don't feel like it's past, um, but they don't want to be, um, uh, they don't feel like it's past, they don't feel like a lot of things have been addressed. Part of our work at the pillar is identifying places where it hasn't been addressed and sort of, uh, you know, becoming a mechanism of public accountability in order to see that they're addressed. But um, like, how does one do that in, in your experience or observation in a way that is not, um, how does one continue to speak about the issues which need to be resolved without, as it were, sort of going full Voris and, uh, and becoming, um, and, and, and becoming in, in a certain way, such a sort of um, resounding gong on these things that, that it just sort of becomes background noise and nobody hears it anymore. And at the same time, how does one sort of maintain talking about those things, pointing out those things, addressing those things without becoming um, embittered or cynical or or, um, or otherwise kind of in a relationship of opposition to the, the institutional leadership of the church? Well, the, the embittered and cynical part of the question is, I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you've worked in and around Catholic Church in a way more directly and for longer than I have. Um, I know. I don't know how to do it. That's why I'm asking. Uh, <laughs> uh, Help me, so Stephen. The, 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 no, the easy answer is read you know, read the third chapter of Genesis. Um, there, There's a certain sense in which I, I find it easy to sort of give the devil more than is due. I look around at the world around me and I look at my own failings and, and sins and I think, oh my gosh, you know, we're screwed. But that's always been the way, right? There's a reason that it took as much as it took to save us. And God was willing to do that. That's great, you know. And he did it for us even while we were still sinners. He didn't wait till we were perfect while we were yet sinners. He suffered and died for us. So sin and suffering and brokenness and corruption in my own life or around me, that's that's the sort of the, the go-to for me, is that as depressing and as much of an inducement to cynicism as that may be, um, it just makes the, the gratuity of our redemption stand out and shine all the brighter, if that makes sense. Put it in a sort of sardonic, humorous way. I've often I've often said that you know God's ways God's ways are not my ways, and the best evidence for this is first of all, you know, has He met us suffering and died for this mess of a? Uh, but the other, you know, the, uh, you know, coming to Earth as a baby, has He met a, a human infant? I mean, the, the things that He does to pull us out of the ditch are just ridiculous and absurd. And I'm glad that He doesn't make His decisions the way I do because I would never have done either of those things. But um, we're better for it, thankfully. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's true. Tell me a little bit more about this idea of um, of looking for moments or pieces of uh, of ecclesiastical renewal. So, uh, it, our circumstances today are, in some sense, uh, the same problems we've always had since the fall. 
uh, in other sense, clearly, we we face unique challenges or challenges that are manifested in unique ways these days. Technology, disintegrating society, all the pandemic, all everything um, uh, around us that we feel every day. Uh, there are a lot of unique circumstances that are shaping us. I think it's a mistake to begin immediately from thinking we have new problems, so we have to have new solutions. We, we might, and there's going to certainly be sort of a certain amount of ingenuity or inspiration required to address the myriad problems around us. But I think it also makes sense to look back through 2,000 years of, of church history and look for examples of, look, how did, you know, in the past, the church has faced similar problems or you know, not necessarily exactly the same way we have now, but what did it do then? And I think one of the things that stands out to me is that, as I already hinted, usually when the church needs renewal, it happens because someone or some group of people makes a decision to to live radically. And that those kinds of stories, in retrospect, you can clearly see the hand of providence in uh, Ignatius of Loyola or Francis of Assisi or, you know, Benedict Benedict of Nursia is responsible for Europe as we know it for much of Western civilization indirectly. He did that by going to live by himself in a cave. That was his first step. So uh, we look around and we, we try and think of sort of where do we want to go and then design a, design a plan that we think is going to get us there. And that's good and necessary. God gave us brains for a reason. But I think the church, and this is hardest at the personal level, but also it's harder at the institutional level. We just have to be open to... God's providence. That means discernment. It means doing a lot of things Pope Francis talks about, quite frankly. Um, uh, paying attention to what God is asking of us, not coming up with a plan and then deciding that because that's what we're doing, that's what God wants. Uh, and that that's hard. But I think uh, you know there, there are a lot of tools in the church's bag for, for evangelization. Wealth in the storehouse, I think, would be the better metaphor. Um, one of the things that sort of has been a bugaboo of mine recently is, look, poverty, chastity, and obedience, the evangelical councils, if we had more of those three virtues in our society, what would not be transformed? I know that's easy to say, but uh, all the problems of sort of affluence and consumerism, uh, the all the aftermath of the sexual revolution, uh, all the sort of rank individualism and, and anti-institutionalism, and look, there's a reason those those councils are are sort of a perpetual gift to the church. I think, and I can't demonstrate this, but I, I I suspect that that part of the reason that our our nation's history has been the way it has over the last forty or fifty years has something to do with the fact that in the last forty or fifty years there's been a dramatic and marked decline in religious vocations in the United States, being, being um, religious priests and sisters and brothers. These are men, men and women who live. Uh, radical examples of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and we don't have those examples around very much anymore. I'm sure there's a, a sort of a part of that's cause, part of that's effect, but I think I think there's 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 a reason these things happen simultaneously. So I it, the the church has a lot um, the, a lot of new challenges, but I don't think our solutions or responses always have to be new. Uh, the devil's very smart; he's not particularly original, in my experience. So uh, sometimes you need to just go back to what's tried and true with what's worked before. Um, virtue, holiness, live well, be faithful. I love that. And I think it's a, it's a great place for me. I love that. I'm really glad you said it. And I would like to uh, go to something which is tried and true right now because 
I th believe that we are probably at the end of our time together. Um, you having many uh, things to do today, I am certain. Um, but Steve, would you like to do something tried and true here on the Pillar Podcast and play game? Would I like to? I will consent to do this. <laughs> okay. Well, you work at the Catholic Project, so I thought that we could play a game called The Project Project. And uh, it is effectively Project Yes or No. Um, you listen to the show, I think, so you know the game that we play called Yes or No. Are you familiar with Yes or No? Yes. Okay, so uh, good. You did great on that one. Yes or No is effectively, uh, I will give you a list of things, and you will tell me whether your answer to them is yes or no, and uh, and then we will be there. And you're, you're, uh, you're giggling like a schoolgirl over there. Um, listeners can't see that because I, I think maybe you muted your microphone, but you... You're, you seem extremely nervous about the prospect of this game. I, I would be lying if I said I, I hadn't contacted Ed Condon to see how he deals with this sort of nonsense when it's <laughs> him in my place. But, but this, is, I mean, this is not particularly helpful. But yeah, let's this go. This is going to be get, fairly harmless. Just I'm just going to ask you questions. Let's, it, you know? let's get it over. Okay. All right. So again, the way this game works is I'm just going to tell you things and you're going to tell me yes or no, no thinking uh, about it beforehand. We can discuss it after, but I just need your sort of gut, visceral, intuitive reaction to the, to the question that I'll ask you. All no. Right? Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Project yes or no, the project, project, Steve, the Manhattan Project. Yes. Okay. Now there are people who would say no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Steve, the Alan Parsons Project. Yes. All right. Okay. Wow. You're two for two on yes. Um, Travis Hafner. No. <laughs> do you know why? Do you know why I said that? Do you know Travis Hafner? He was a uh, first baseman and designated hitter for the Cleveland soon-to-be Guardians. Am I correct about he that? He was. He was, and the Rangers and the Yankees, and he had two nicknames. Um, uh, do you know what they were? Travis. And no, I don't know. <laughs> no, Travis was his, his, Travis was his Christian name. He had two nicknames: um, the Project and Donkey. And uh, both of those were uh, nicknames that were given to him because of the way that he ran bases, um, which was not very good. And eventually, that those nicknames were fused together, and most of his teammates called him Pronk. Um, but Travis Hafner was the Project, and you're going no on Hafner. No. All right, Project Treadstone. No. No. Without Treadstone, there'd be no board identity. It's made up, JD. <laughs> it is made up. It's that's true. Thing. Okay. It is that's true. Okay. Uh now this is a this is a television program that um came out in our in in our childhoods. Um I wasn't allowed to watch it. I don't know if you were allowed to watch it or not, but um it was uh, I, I I wish I could remember who was in it. I, I or I just wish I had done about three minutes worth of research. I think that Eddie Murphy was in it and um, a few other people. Eddie Murphy probably played a bunch of characters, but the PJs. No. Did you ever see it? No. I know no, what it do is, you know what though, it is? because you sent me this really unsettling text message of just a picture of like the claymation images last night and i was terrified of this is one of the reasons i was very reluctant to play this game is because <laughs> i don't know anything about the pj i mean i i remember it vaguely but i never saw yeah. it because i don't know eddie murphy wasn't something that my parents thought was a good idea to expose me to yeah it was like a claymation stop motion kind of show i think it was on the wb or maybe fox about kind of life in uh, in a housing project and uh and uh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch it, and uh, and you weren't either. So that this one's more about our parents, I suppose, saying no than us. Okay, Project MK Ultra. No. Do you know what that is? That's the uh, uh, CIA telekinesis thing. 
It's the C. It's the CIA telekinesis thing. Do you know what emerged out of Project MK Ultra? Stranger Things. LSD. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So um, also yeah, Stranger but, Things. Also Stranger Things. So you're a no on that. No. Okay. The Blair Witch Project. No. Do you think, though, that you guys could make a kind of like with the Catholic Project, I think it'd be cool if you guys made a sort of promotional, maybe a fundraising video that was Blair Witch Project-esque and you had like kind of a hat and a runny nose and you're running around. I'm not sure that the work that we do at the Catholic Project would be benefited by a spoof on a horror movie, given the nature of our work. (laughs) I'm certain it wouldn't, but I'd like Um, you to do it. I will offer a, a... a film in the similar genre of sort of the, the found film. I've never seen the Blair Witch Project, but I know obviously it was a, a phenomenon back in there. There's a movie called Troll Hunter, which is a Norwegian film. A, a similar I've found, heard of it, I think found from you. film kind of movie where there's this film that was found shot by college students and the things that they uncovered. And I'm not going to say I recommend it, but I kind of recommend it. If you like so you weird didn't... Norwegian movies about trolls. I would check Blair Witch Project came out probably when you were in college, but you didn't take um, Mrs. White to see it. I think it came out when I was in high school, and no. Okay. Well, maybe that's why she married you. Uh, and then finally, I know you're going to say yes to this one. Everybody knows you're going to say yes to this one. Don't be ashamed. Um, Project Runway. No. Oh, come on. No. Go for it. No. Well, Steve, um, that was not so bad. It wasn't. I, I, did, I was expecting you to say something about the Alan Parsons Project, by the way. Did you know that they did the soundtrack to one of the greatest 1980s movies ever called Lady Hawk? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, but I'm Ruff, definitely... Roger Howard, Matthew Broderick, Michelle Pfeiffer, and the guy who played Rumpel of the Bailey, whose name escapes me right now. Yeah. In fact, it's a, it's a movie about the church in a way and you could say it's about episcopal accountability it's a fascinating story with a really crazy 80s soundtrack so i don't know if your listeners should check it out but you definitely should jd l-a-d-y-h-a-w-k-e oh i will i'll 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 consider renting that and uh and steve (laughs) thanks a lot for filling in this has been great uh i'm really glad that you've been here and uh and thanks for being a friend of the show. My guest and everyone say a prayer for Ed and Mrs. Condon. Yeah, do that. The uh, Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I'm joined this week by friend of the show, Steve White, and uh, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.